Well, good morning again. If you haven't met me yet, my name is Michael. I'm one of the pastors here. And this morning we're on week two of our series, Why We Are the Way We Are, a series where we're looking at kind of some of the core beliefs that we hold as a church community because fundamentally you run into people in life sometimes where you're like, why are they the way they are? And it normally comes from what they believe. Because what we believe, truly believe at our core shapes not just what we do, but who we are. And so as a church community, we want to look at some of the beliefs that we hold together, we confess together. Um, we have hold them in a statement called the Menon Confession of Faith from a Mennonite Perspective. It's a mouthful. I try to avoid saying it. We need a shorter name for it. But there's 24 different statements, confessions of our belief. And we're working through six of them in this series. So we'll have to do this series every year for four years to get through the whole thing. We're working through six of them, one a week. And then on the seventh week, we're doing a Q&A Sunday. Um, so if you have any questions that come up throughout the series, please text them to my number that's going to be on the screen during the message or email them to me at michael at cedarvalley.ca and I'll collect those and we'll try to answer those. And uh, if you want to see how smart Grant is and ask some really big questions and I'll throw them to Grant and we'll see what happens. Um, that's what's going on. And this week we're looking at our belief, our confession of our belief in Jesus. And so what we have said is this. We believe in Jesus Christ, the word of God become flesh. He is the savior of the world who has delivered us from the dominion of sin and reconciled us to God by humbling himself and becoming obedient unto death on a cross. He was declared to be the son of God with power by his resurrection from the dead. He is the head of the church, the exalted Lord, the lamb who was slain, coming again to reign with God in glory. No other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So that's our massive statement, and there's a lot bundled up in that. So what we're going to do is we're going to walk through phrase by phrase and go, hey, where do these different beliefs come from? Where do these different statements come from? And then after we kind of walk through it, we're going to go, what impact does that have on us? How is that forming us? If we truly believe this, what does this mean for our lives? So let's start at the beginning. The first phrase, the word of God become flesh. And you'll often hear around church the phrase, the word of God. And what's really confusing is people can mean two different things. There's the big W word of God, which is a way, a name for Jesus, a term for describing Jesus. And there's a little W word of God, except that maybe it should be a big W word of God. I'm not sure. It's confusing, which we use to describe the Bible or scripture. And the Bible and Jesus are different things, right? Uh, the Bible is a collection of 66 different books written by a variety of authors over centuries. And we believe that each one of those books was the author was inspired by God to write that book. The words written in that book were shaped by God to communicate who he is, who we are, and the relationship he wants to have with us. And so it is a communication from God. So you could call it a wor the word of God, even though it's not literally, it wasn't that God spoke all of those words. He inspired those words. But in the context of Jesus, we also have this term, the word of God for Jesus. And where did that come from? It came from one of his followers, one of his closest friends, 
uh, when he was on earth for 33 years, whose name was John. And John wrote a book telling about Jesus' work on earth. And he starts that book in John chapter 1, starting at verse 1. And he says this, In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. The Word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. And he continues on a bit more, and it's great, but it gets a little bit long-winded. So we're going to jump to verse 14. So the Word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. So John, a follower of Jesus, a close friend of Jesus, writes this to describe Jesus. And says that Jesus was with God, Jesus was God, and he came in human flesh and was on earth. And we and personally got to interact with him. So continuing on in our statement, he is the Savior of the world, who has delivered us from the dominion of sin and reconciled us to God by humbling himself and becoming obedient unto death on the cross. And we touched on this last week, uh, but Paul, an early leader in the church, um, a few decades after Jesus was on earth, he was an early leader in the church, and they're kind of going, okay, like we experienced Jesus in all of his teaching, like how do we kind of become a community that follows Jesus? What does that mean? Who exactly was Jesus? Like, if you ask a bunch of people who are friends with me who I am, they're each going to give slightly different answers because they have different experiences of me. And so then you have to go, okay, how, who exactly is Michael? And what exactly did my, does, Michael do, did, does Michael do with his life, right? And so the early church was having to kind of do that with Jesus. And so Paul's writing a letter to the church in the city of Rome saying, here's some of the key things about Jesus. And so in Romans chapter 3, starting at verse 23, for everyone has sinned. Everyone has done wrong things. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Jesus Christ when he freed us from the penalty, the consequence for our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. That's why we celebrate communion. That's why for 2,000 years, we've been eating bread and drinking grape juice together. Because we believe that this is what Jesus did on earth. And the impact that it has. And that he is the savior of the world who has delivered us from the power, the dominion of sin. And made us right with God, reconciled us to God by humbling himself and becoming obedient unto death on the cross. And the next phrase is really short. He was declared to be son of God with power by his resurrection from the dead. It's short, but it's really key. Uh, there's a term called the crux move in rock climbing or the crux, uh, like in mountain biking, you'll say, hey, this is the crux move on the trail. And forever I'd heard that term. I was like, oh, crux is a nice word. It sounds cool, but what is it? And really what crux means is it's like when you're rock climbing, it may take 10 moves to get up a wall. You put your, this hand there and you put this foot there or whatever. But at some point in that set of moves, there's that one move 
that is the hardest. It's like if you make this move, the rest of it will work out. And in our faith, this statement is often the crux of our belief. It's, if this is true, then our faith is true. If this isn't true, then our faith is worthless and should be tossed out. He was declared to be the Son of God with power by his resurrection from the dead. Paul, in that letter they wrote to the church in Rome, he starts his letter off, verse 2 of this letter, he says, God promised this good news long ago through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The good news is, is about his son and his earthly life. He was born into King David's family line. This good news about his son, he was born on earth, he was born into the line of David and as a great, 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 great grandson of David. He was shown to be the Son of God, when he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord. So a few decades after Christ's life, death, and resurrection, this was the crux of their faith, going, he was, Jesus wasn't just a good teacher. Ever since Jesus was on earth, even when he was on earth, there's lots of people who are like, oh yeah, he's a good teacher. He's a good religious leader. He's got some good thoughts. He also kind of shook up a lot of the political and social and cultural and religious mindsets and got some people pretty upset. But you're like, oh, he's a good person. He's a good human. He's an inspiring human even. And sometimes in our faith, we stay there. But if he's just an inspiring human, then it's just a book of good advice. That's all the Bible is. But what's revolutionary about him is that he lived on earth, he did some miracles, and you're like, oh, that's pretty cool, but maybe you're a magician. And then he, and he died a human death, like all of us expect to die. And he was dead for three days, like humans are supposed to do. And then three days after being dead, he came back to life, which no human's ever supposed to do, right? Something went crazy wrong or crazy right. And suddenly they're like, oh yeah, he kept, like he was a good person, but he was a little weird when he talked about being the son of God, being God, and like, may, I don't know, maybe he's stretching things a little bit. Maybe he got a little egotistical here. And then he comes back to life. And his closest followers believe that this happened enough that they were willing to die for their faith. You don't die for oh yeah, my friend died and then there was story, we made up some stories about him coming back to life. You don't die for that. You die for something you truly believe. And so this is where there's a lot of actual evidence. There's a whole books written on this. Um, the Case for Christ by Lee Strobel is a great book walking through the evidence of this happening. But this is often a, the key, the crux move for our faith going, if this is true, then I have to believe in Jesus. And if this isn't true, then this is just a nice feel-good religion thing. And to summarize it, Lee Strobel, the author of the book, The Case for Christ, has a really good video clip where he summarizes it in about three minutes. So let's watch that together now. I like to look at the evidence for the resurrection in four categories. The first one is, did Jesus die on the cross? Was he dead? Virtually every scholar on planet Earth concedes that Jesus was dead 
after crucifixion. We have no record of anyone anywhere ever surviving a full Roman crucifixion. Uh, even the Journal of the American Medical Association uh, published a peer-reviewed scientific medical study of the evidence for the death of Jesus and said clearly the weight of the evidence indicates that Jesus was dead even before the wound to his side was inflicted. Even the atheist New Testament scholar Gerd Ludemann says historically it's indisputable that Jesus was dead. So Jesus was dead. The second category of evidence is the early accounts we have for the resurrection. In other words, I used to think as an atheist that the resurrection was a legend and that took a long time to develop in the ancient world. But what I learned is that we have preserved for us a creed of the earliest Christian church, a creed that is a eyewitness-based report of the resurrection of Jesus. Now this creed has been dated back by scholars to within months of the death of Jesus, within months. That is historical gold. So we've got a newsflash from ancient history on the resurrection. Third category of evidence is the empty tomb. And the best evidence for that is even the opponents of Jesus implicitly admitted the tomb was empty. Because when the disciples began proclaiming that Jesus had risen, what the opponents said was, oh, well, um, the disciples stole the body. Now they're conceding the tomb's empty, they're just trying to explain how it got empty. So everybody's conceding the tomb was empty. How did it get empty is really the issue. And that goes to the fourth category of evidence, which is eyewitnesses. You know, for most of what we know about ancient history, it comes from one or maybe two sources of information. And yet for the conviction of the disciples that they encountered the resurrected Jesus, we have no fewer than nine ancient sources inside and outside the New Testament, confirming and corroborating the conviction of the disciples that they encountered the risen Christ. That is an avalanche of historical data. So you put all that together and you have a really good case for Easter. And so that's one of those I like to look at the evidence for the resurrection in four categories. Like there's times where I'm like, oh, am I crazy for believing this? And when you actually dig into the evidence of the resurrection, you go, I'm forced to believe in this Jesus who is fully human and fully God. Continuing on, the next statement. He is the head of the church, the exalted Lord, the lamb who was slain. Okay, this statement is saying he's all these high up things. And then he goes, he's a lamb. He's a sheep who is killed. There's a weird contrast here. Coming again to reign with God in glory. And the authors of our confession of faith, they wrote a commentary alongside, just explained some of their thoughts as they wrote this. And one of them said this, as king who chose the way of the cross, Jesus has revealed the servant character of divine power. As king who chose the way of the cross, the way of a human crucifixion, human death, he has revealed the servant character of divine power. It's, it's a strange theme. And then our final phrase, no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And this is a quote actually coming from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, which is, again, Paul, he wrote a lot of letters to church, early churches that we have in the Bible. Uh, so he's writing this to the church in Corinth, and he says this, because of God's grace to me, I have laid the foundation, and he's talking about the foundation of faith, like an expert builder. Now others are building on it. And he's talking about, I've kind of started this building, this structure of faith in your church community. Now others are building on it. But whoever is building on this foundation must be very 
careful. You must be very careful when you're building a structure of faith. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one we already have, Jesus Christ. As a church community, there's a phrase that we use fairly frequently that Jesus is the center of our faith. What we mean by this is that Jesus is the foundation of our faith. If you build things, when, once you build the foundation, you've established the footprint of that building. You could build up one story, three stories, ten stories. The found, you can build it very tall, but you know you're only going to go so far out. Because if you start building outside of the, fa- out, out hanging over the edge of the foundation, eventually your building is just going to topple over. Like there's some engineering tricks you can do, but eventually you're going to run out of foundation. If you get too far away from the foundation, you start going too far out. And in our faith, this is the concept that Jesus is the epitome. Who Jesus is, what he did, is the center of our faith. And so anything that we build in our faith must be able to be built on the foundation of Jesus. If it's a nice idea, but it doesn't go on the foundation of Jesus, we're starting to build a faith that won't hold up, a faith that's not structurally stable. So Jesus, no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And all throughout this confession of who Jesus is, this understanding of this person who is both God and came and lived a human life, who died for us a human death, and came back to life through the power of God. All throughout the story, there's a dynamic of power. There's a dynamic of power, and power is an interesting thing. We see humans interact with power. I was listening to a podcast this week where somebody was interviewing Jeff Bezos. If you don't know who Jeff Bezos is, he owns Amazon, the company that owns my credit card. Um, I spend so much money on Amazon. It's really convenient. But long story short, he's been very successful in business. He's one of the richest people on earth. He has over $100 billion. And so on this podcast, he's talking about how he's spending a lot of his money on this company called Blue Origin that's doing like space exploration and trying to basically move humanity into space, which is really cool and really interesting. I'm like, man, that's awesome. That's great. Uh, Man, if I had $100 billion, what would I do? And I was like, Well, maybe I would spend some of it on space, but I'd also fix world hunger. I found myself judging what he was doing with the money he had. Really, I was judging what he was doing with the power he had from the money he had. I don't think I'm the only person that does that. I think we often see somebody in a position of power and we judge how they use that power. Make anyone in this building prime minister and everyone else in this building is going to be judging how they use the power of being prime minister, right? That's how we work. But think about for a second, when do we get power? When do we get power? When do we get power? Maybe we get financial power through a pay raise, getting an inheritance. Maybe we get relational, influential power through being put in a position of leadership at work, or maybe at a nonprofit or even church. Maybe we're just popular and there's some power that comes from people liking you. When people like you, you can get your way more. That's just how life works. We pretend it only happens in high school, but it keeps happening the rest of our lives. There's different power that we get. Sometimes you're just really skilled at something and that gives you power when you're really competent at something. Grant has a lot more power on stage with a guitar than I do because he can actually play it and sound good. That's just how it works. 
But when do we get power? And when we get a little bit more power, what do we do with that power? Do we try to avoid and go, I don't want power, and so I'm just going to try to not use it? Or do we get, like, have you ever had a manager where they didn't really want the power of being a manager, and they're like, everybody just manage yourselves? They just tried to avoid it? Or maybe you get power, and you're like, hey, this can give me the privilege of making my life more comfortable. I can use my pay, the money I got from this pay raise to hire somebody to clean my house for me because I hate cleaning my house and my life gets more comfortable. Right? Sometimes people kind of become a bit of an evil dictator when they get a little bit more power and you go, man, power went to their head. Other times they try to get rid of the power. I remember I was good at a particular, like, I was fairly good at a particular thing at one job that I had. But I really didn't want to do it. I didn't want to be known as a person who was good at this. And so when the boss was around, I would pretend not to be good at it, to get out of ever having to do it, because I didn't want the power of being the person who was good at this. And I was like, anyways. And I tried to escape power, right? But power is an interesting thing to be given. Can you imagine any human, what they would do if they're given like godlike power? Like, I feel like that's what we see when we watch the Marvel movies, the superhero movies, and they're given godlike power. It's like you get bitten by a radioactive spider instead of, like, dying of radiation like you probably should. Instead, you become, like, Spider-Man, and you can fly around with webs, and you have so much power. And what are the, What's the Spider-Man person going to do with the power? And Jesus is an interesting thing because Jesus is an example, the perfect example, of not a human having God-like power, but actually a human with the complete power of God. And what did he do with that? Did he go, okay, I'm going to, yeah, I'll come to earth as a human, but I'll live in a really nice house with lots of servants, but eat the best food, travel, have the nice life, enjoy all the privileges of this power? In Philippians chapter 2, Paul and Timothy, this time he shared some of the writing responsibilities here, wrote to the church in Philippi this. You must have the same attitude that Jesus, Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave I was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, because of that, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names. That the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue can declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And I love the end of that. It's such an inspiring praise and honor to Jesus. But then at the begin, in the middle of that passage, it points, Paul and Timothy are pointing out that Jesus did not take the privileges of the power of God. He actually laid down the privileges and instead considered it a privilege to become the servant of all. He considered it a privilege to use his God-given power to serve others even giving up his own life, experiencing death. 
And then if you look at the very first line, it gets awkward because Paul and Timothy say, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. You and I must have the same attitude with the power that God gives us as Christ Jesus had. What was that attitude? That attitude was giving, laying down the privilege of comfort the power could give, and instead becoming the ser- considering a privilege to become the servant of all. So what would you do if you were given incredible power? Would you embrace that privilege and the comfort it affords you so you could quit serving? Like I sometimes think, oh man, if I had a little bit more money, I'd get a more comfortable car, I'd pay somebody to do this for me, I'd have a more comfortable life, really. But what we learn as humans, when we have the opportunity to pursue our own comfort and live in that place of comfort, we actually find ourselves feeling less and less alive inside. It's a little confusing. We're we're like, what's going on here? Because we're created in the image of God, and we have to take that seriously. You were created in the image of God. You were created to live with the same character, with the same purpose as God. And so your purpose is not to take the power that God gives you to make yourself comfortable, but instead to take that power and consider it a privilege to use that power to serve others. When you're, when you're depressed, like it's, it's a really annoying thing you'll hear in mental health world. Hey, you feel depressed. You're in a bad spot mentally. Do something to help somebody else. And suddenly you will feel slight, at least slightly better. It just works. Because that's living in the image of God. It's living your life as you were created to live your life. It's taking the power that God's given you and moving forward with it. So I want to take a moment for you to reflect. I want you to ask a couple questions and think these through. What power do you have right now? In your life right now, what power do you have? When you're at home with your family, what power do you have? How can you have influence, control, get things done? When you're at work, what power do you have? What impact do you have on those around you? With your friends? What power do you have right now? I'm going to challenge you a little bit. Because if you're a follower of Jesus, we're going to get into this more next week. But if you're a follower of Jesus, God has promised that he is actually giving you his power. Through the Holy Spirit, he is giving you his power. You have access to the full power of God to use within his will. So you actually have a lot of power. doesn't matter if you're the lowest person on the, the organizational chart at work. You have the least power in your family and the least power with your friends. You have that power. So what power do you have right now? What privileges, what personal comforts and privileges of that power can you lay down? Like in your family, do you have a bit of a say in where you go on vacation? Where it's like, yeah, we can go anywhere on vacation, but it has to check these boxes for me. Can you lay that power and privilege down? When you're at work, you might not be in charge, but the attitude you have and the opinions you give shape how the peop- everyone else's experiences around you. You have power over everyone else's work day. 
Are you just pushing to make sure that your day feels good for you? Or are you serving others in that day? So what privileges of power can you lay down? And then how can you use that power instead to serve others? How can you become a servant of all with the power that God's given you? Whether you feel like you're in a place of incredible power or no power. If you're in a place where you feel like God's calling you to serve in a way that you don't have the power, that's exactly why he said, I've given you my spirit. I will give you my power. Because power is not a good or a bad thing. From the beginning of humanity, God gave humanity, all of us. He said, I created you in my image. I've given you dominion. I've given you power all of, over all of creation. It's an opportunity to live as we're created to live. To have the character of Jesus with our power. That's even this morning. That's why we practice communion. We practice communion as a church community to remind us of what Jesus did with the power of God as a human. That he would let, instead of living a life of comfort, being the most powerful human on earth, instead he became one of the most humble humans on earth. And he laid down his life and sat, used that power to redeem us and make us right with God. When we transform the privilege of power, instead say, this power gives me the privilege of making my life comfortable. Instead we say, no, this power gives me the privilege of becoming a servant of all. We flip the entire world upside down. Everything starts to work differently. Instead of the kingdom of this world looking like the broken system that it is, it starts to look like the kingdom of God, where things are made right. Where love starts to win. Where peace starts to become normal. Where joy becomes something that we don't chase after, but something that we find constantly. Because each one of us, in the image of God, has been given the privilege of power. But it's our choice whether that's a privilege to abuse and live in comfort, or whether we take it as a privilege to become a servant of all like Jesus. Let's pray. I'm going to invite the band up for our final song as I pray. God, it's inspiring and it's challenging really knowing you. It's easy to say, hey, we believe this about you, we believe that about you. But when we come to know you through the character of Jesus Christ, who laid down your life for us. You gave up all the privileges that you could have with your power and instead considered a privilege to love each one of us, to lay down your life for us, to spend time with us, to give everything for us. It's inspiring. We want to step into it. So we pray that you would empower us through your spirit, not through our own strength, but through your spirit, that we would become servants of all, God. That we become a church community that's known not as people that position themselves with their power, but people that serve everyone around them with the power that you've given us. That we reflect your heart and your character through that. I know in my own faith journey that I used to know you at the beginning of my faith. I knew you as creator. I knew you as in charge. I knew you as someone with some rules and some directions. And if I said the right words, I'd end up in heaven. And that was nice, but then I got to know you for who you actually are, for your heart. That you love us so, so much. That you know each one of us and you want to make our relationship right with you. 
that you came to earth not to say fix it, but you came to earth to say I'm going to fix our relationship. I'm so grateful for that. We love you, Jesus. I pray that we would live in the freedom and the life that you give us. In your name, amen. I invite you to stand with us if you want. We'll just sing out this statement of faith together.
God, we just want to thank you. We just want to spend a moment in thank you to you. We believe in you and we're so grateful for what you've done. We're thankful for how you've worked in our lives, how you've brought us new life. We're thankful for the way that we've seen you bring new life in the lives of those around us, our friends, our family. We're holding friends, coworkers, family members in prayer that they would come to know and follow you and experience the life that you bring, the hope that you bring. We just want to be a church that lives in your presence, a church that lives in your power, a church that never loses sight of you, that we build our faith on the foundation that you give. Your name, amen. Well, thank you so much for joining together as a church community to worship Jesus together. Uh, Don't forget about the Christmas cleanup coming up soon. I would love for you to be a part of that in a couple weeks. Um, Have a great Sunday. Get a cup of coffee. Say hi to somebody that you don't know their name. Um, And yeah, have a great week.